0: Hi there, and welcome to the Oompaul.com podcast. I'm Oli, and for this episode, I'm pleased to bring you a chat with the man, the myth, the legend, J.T. Cook. Known for his magnificent pipes and superior blast technique, Jim's artistry is some of the best around. The following podcast is made possible by the Monstrosity line of pipes. Go to Oompaul.com, click on Monstrosity, and see which beasts are currently available for adoption. Your $100 donation to the podcast affords you the pick of the litter. Each piece, made of aged Grecian briar, drilled by a nameless professional, then hacked, twisted, scraped, and maimed by yours truly, the Pipe Butcher. Support the podcast by picking one up today. Each comes with a lifetime ashes-to-ashes guarantee against burnout, breakage, and even bite-through. The following podcast was recorded on February 6th, 2009. Sit back, grab a pipe, and stay a while. I hope you enjoy. On the line with us today, we have great American pipe carving legend J.T. Cook. J.T., welcome to the show.
1: Well, thank you very much for asking me. Uh, it gives me a chance to get out of the shop and get upstairs and get warm.
0: Yeah. <laughs> I bet it's pretty cold there. You're up in Vermont. What's, it, what's the weather like today over there?
1: Ah! Uh... Uh, today, it looks actually, it looks hopeful. Uh, it's 12 degrees, and there's a yellow ball in the sky, which people have told me is the sun. <laughs> I withhold judgment. Uh, I'll wait for another month or two, but yeah, it actually looks like spring might come sometime around June. <laughs> well,
0: that's not too bad, right? Yeah, uh, I'm not complaining. That's good. How long have you been in Vermont? Your whole life, or what?
1: Yeah. Yeah, on and off uh, my whole life, but it's where I grew up. Yep. Actually, my sister and I live in the house that my mom and dad built when we were tiny people. Uh, Yeah, they built it over the course of several years, Uh, did everything but pour the foundation, and uh, that's where my sister and I now live.
0: Okay, cool. Yeah. So you must be pretty close to your sister then.
1: Yeah. 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 Uh, She's a few years older than I am. She's a retired college professor, and we pretty much, we leave each other uh, to their own space. I would say we're both very undomesticated. Right.
0: (laughs) Um, Okay, well, let's go ahead and start talking about your gorgeous pipes. Tell me about how how and when you first got involved with making pipes.
1: Oh, boy. I first got involved with making pipes um back in the early 70s i was working at a television station as an art director and i was smoking a lot of cigarettes and my wife wanted me to try to pipe so she got me one of those uh pipe kits a briar pipe kit and i went ahead and started working on that and i was hooked yeah, the, the the first piece that I worked on it was I was absolutely enthralled with the wood, and I come from a family of of craftsmen anyway, so this was it was not a surprise, you know.
0: Mm-hmm. How did you carve that first kit? <laughs> oh man, <laughs>
1: I I carved the block and I carved myself too. <laughs> I did I did almost the whole thing. With exacto knives, which is probably you know not the most efficient way of of making a piece, uh, but back then I really you know was just grabbing whatever tools that I had, mm-hmm. and I think that's that's fairly common among among younger starters. We don't know what we don't know, so mm-hmm. go go ahead and try something. Who knows? You may invent something new.
0: Yeah, Do you still have that first pipe. Yep. You ever smoke it?
1: Uh no, actually, I've. There are probably about a uh, dozen pieces that I've made over the years that I've put away in a box, and they're essentially for my my children. Mm-hmm. You know, when when I croak, it's not like they're not going to have a lot of s- stuff to sort through, but I figure <laughs> that can actually be something that they can keep that they won't have to put in the dumpster.
0: <laughs> um. So that first kit—that was really the impetus that made you decide. This is what I got to do. I got to make pipes.
1: Yeah, yeah. And from from there, I I searched around obviously to for a place to to find brier, and it ended up that uh, at that time um, in the early seventies, Elliot Nag had a small one-two man operation over in Stowe, Vermont. And he was making pipes. So I bought some briar blocks uh through Elliot and York, his partner in the in the business. And then uh a year or two later a spot opened up uh in their company and I took a drastic cut in pay and went from working at a television station to working at a, a pipe shop.
0: And what did you do there?
1: What did I I started out as the lathe turner uh, and did all the lathe work there for uh, the first half of my tenure there and then eventually ended up in the running the finishing department Uh, but it's one of those things that we, I think, when I was there we may have had like four, five, six guys working so you really ended up Uh, having to really be able to do anything, you know, if a guy came, you know, (laughs) came in and wasn't there,
2: uh,
1: uh, we'd have had to be able to jump in and and do the sanding or the shaping or anything else that that needed doing. You know, the stuff had to get made, so ended up,
0: yeah. Coming out of um, uh, being an art director at a television station, um... Was this the first time that you worked with um, this these types of tools?
1: No. Um, like I said, my mom and dad built this house. Well, my my dad was one of these self-taught uh, woodworkers, and I grew up literally in in the, his workshop, knee deep in sawdust, watching him work. Mm-hmm. And I never I never really asked him anything. It was just uh, just watching. And I learned that way, and eventually, of course, I got to to try some of the tools, not a heck of a lot of them, because uh, they were sharp, and they make nasty cuts. Um, but yeah, eventually, it was, you know, it was like coming home, you know, to work in a wood shop. The smell was right, the feel was right, you know, mm-hmm. sawdust between my toes and, and my ears, and you know, the smell <laughs> of, of uh, burning wood getting pushed into a dull blade, you know, all that kind of
0: um, How long was it um, between you first making the, working that first pipe kit to when you uh, started working in the shop?
1: Oh, boy, it was a, you got to understand, this was the, the 70s, um, so uh, some of my memory is a bit hazy, shall we say? <laughs> I I think that was probably uh, maybe two two and a half years, something like that.
0: Were you still working on kits at the time when you got the, when you took that job?
1: No. One, once I got it, uh, got to the Briar Workshop. Uh, it it became you know it was business. It, so it was serious stuff.
0: So the the work that you did at the Briar Workshop. Um, did you how did that work with you making your own pipes?
1: Well, at the time I I wasn't at the time I was essentially learning the basics of, you know, real pipe production, you know, mm-hmm. how to, get, you know, start from point A and get to point B with a a product that, you know, was essentially at that point a world-class product at, at you know, at a reasonable price. So it was more learning my chops there,
2: mm-hmm. and
1: of course, a lot of the stuff eventually I had to unlearn. But at least at that point, I was uh, getting a foundation under me.
0: And how long was it before you started um, working on your own line of pipes after oh. you started working in the Briar Workshop?
1: Yeah, I worked there for a couple of years, and then they were going to move the operation to Florida and I didn't want to be stuck behind uh, a line of cars with their left turn signal on. Mm-hmm. So I decided to stay here and that those were those were tough years. Um working uh before really anybody knew me. So I ended up doing a lot of uh subcontracting work for other people.
2: Mm-hmm
1: you know, other pipe places that needed stuff done. Why well, I, I I did the I did a lot of that work for a variety of companies.
0: And when when do you feel like um your name really got out there and people knew who you were?
1: Uh, I think uh when when I got hooked up with the uh, the late Barry Levin. Um Barry, I don't know if if you knew him or were around then um
2: Mm-mm.
1: But he essentially was the first guy, really, to get a a photo mailer going uh, nationwide, and then eventually worldwide, and started to, you know, connect up Pipe Smoker A in California with Pipe Smoker B in New York, who were collecting the same thing and and looking for stuff. And I started doing the restoration work for for Barry, Mm -hmm. Um, and that continued on until his death. And that, essentially, people found out through him that I was doing the restoration work, and that led to that whole end of the business that I was in for for a long time. Mm Mm-hmm um which was a wonderful education i wish every young pipe maker could could have the opportunity to have you know literally thousands of high grades come through your workshop and get to take them apart and clean them and examine them and and repair them and essentially get them back in in smoking shape And that's kind of where, you know, people started hearing of of me. And most of them at that point didn't know I was a pipe maker. They just looked at me as a pipe restoration guy.
0: From that point, um, how did you let those folks know, and and eventually the rest of the world know, um, that you were a pipe carver?
1: Well, um, again, that started out, well, eventually... Um, We started to put some of my pieces in in Barry's photo mailer, Mm -hmm. Um, and then people kind of got the idea, oh, yeah, um, he makes his own stuff. And also, I did a line, uh, Barry and I collaborated on a line of his own um, mid-priced pieces, Mm -hmm. um, the LPI label. Um, so eventually through, uh, his customer base became familiar with me and then they began to see a few more of my pieces and about that time, some of the shows started at least on the East coast and I started to do a little bit more of that.
0: What was your first pipe show?
1: The one that Barry put on outside of Boston, uh, and I can't tell you the year, uh, I know my children were little, so that would put it probably 25, 20 or 25 years ago anyway.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and I can't remember the town, but it was billed as the Boston Show. And that was a real eye-opener. Um, and back then, it was more, much more emphasis on collections. You know, guys would bring out their their Barling collection or their Dunhill collection or their Meersham collection or their Tamper collection or whatever. And there was much less of an emphasis on pipe carvers.
0: And did you have work for sale at that show?
2: Yeah.
1: Yeah, I did. I didn't sell very many pieces, and that really wasn't a surprise. Um at that point I knew my stuff was not up to snuff. Um I'm as far as Americans went, you know, there weren't a heck of a lot of us around carving at that point anyway. But at at that point I mean I I couldn't compare my pieces to like a Dunhill or a Sheraton or really anything. Mm-hmm. Um, the work, the the craftsmanship, uh, the attention to detail, the design—none of it was up to snuff.
0: And how long do you feel like it it took you until um, you were there?
1: <laughs> I'm still working at it. <laughs> you know, you you look at it. I, I look out here on the, and in in the lake in front of me, there are a couple of ducks. Sitting out there, and they look so serene on the on the top, and everything looks just dandy, but I know if I put on a snorkel and mask and go underwater, their feet are going a million miles an hour, mm-hmm. you know, so appearances can be deceiving um, there's a, a uh, the more I think I know, the less I find out that I really do know mm-hmm. so there's still things that um, shapes and designs that I'm chasing for for all I'm worth that I'm still struggling with. So uh, I kind of hope I never reach the point where I think I'm actually there. That would be incredibly boring and incredibly arrogant. (laughs) (laughs) And that's about the time you have a horrible shop accident, you know, (laughs) when you think you got all your bases covered. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Hey, baby, I'm really sharp
0: clunk. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, do you have a a favorite and least favorite part of pipe making when it comes to the actual hands-on, um, task?
1: Uh, the, boy, that's a tough one. Because each, each phase of it has its own exciting part, whether it be just the joy of it, or the, uh... Physical risk, (laughs) I know you wouldn't think of it, but you get a, you know, a block of wood swirling in in a 10-inch lathe with a 2-horsepower motor, that gets the old bump, you know, the old uh, heart pumping along. And so that's exciting. The casting of the raw stem is exciting because you only have a certain window Uh, to work with the plastics once you've all mixed stuff together and you pray you figured everything out right. Uh, Shaping, there's always uh, an opportunity to uh, lose your concentration for a split second and ruin a perfectly good piece. Uh, Everything is exciting about it. Um, If I had to pick one thing that stood out above the rest, I would say, would be the time I spend in the blasting cabinet. Really? Yeah, that's just, that's got all the other elements uh, that are in the other parts, but it, it seems to have them all there from, you know, praying to God that this air pressure line that you've got coming in that something doesn't go wrong there and have that thing come loose on you because uh, that can be just plain nasty.
2: Yeah.
1: Um, and Plus the time element of, of trying to get uh, an area blasted with X amount of air pressure in a teeny tiny line. Um, I spend a lot of time on my toes holding my breath. Um, it's not serene work,
0: <laughs> <laughs> but that's the exciting stuff that you really like to do. Yeah,
1: that that's and it's it never becomes unexciting because each piece of wood is totally different, and each area that I'm blasting is totally different. I never know what's coming next, and it really is, you know. Ultimately, you know absolutely have to be focused, paying attention all the time um so it really is fun, and I'm just kind of along for for the ride, not trying to screw the piece of wood up, you know
2: mm-hmm.
1: it's not like I can do the the very best that I can't really show the very best the wood has. I can get a rough approximation and uh keeps keeps the gray cells working for for certain in in my brain trying to think of new or perhaps old or better ways to go about what I'm doing
0: so um, yeah so uh JT what I'm hearing is you don't really have a least favorite part is that right i mean you you love it all
1: yeah i love it all the uh, the only part i will say that that does not thrill me at all is the business end of it, and I'm I'm really not that it's I'm just not that savvy, and that's where I rely on the the people the good people around me that know a hell of a lot more about business, and about um, how properly to market crafts. And there, I just have a lot of good people that will pipe up if I'm out of
0: line someplace. Where can the listeners find your your pipes? Uh,
1: well, uh, good luck. That's all I can say there. Um, I I don't re- really retail them because the price would just be prohibitive. Um, I do have almost everything that I do is custom orders now. Um, I, people generally send me in a postcard and I put it in the file and I go to to the file cabinet and pull out the next postcard and, and work on that. It generally ends up being a couple-year of year wait. Um, the other thing I do is I do a couple of pipe shows a year because obviously there'll be Some pieces that I make that, yeah, it might be a nice pipe, but it's not what the guy ordered. He ordered a virgin, and it came out of tan shell. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: You know, well, I've got to do something with it. And so I do do a couple shows a year. And also, I do like to get out and actually connect a face with a voice because I'm so used to talking to people over the phone, and then I... Get to meet him in person, and that's always fun.
2: Yeah,
1: and it's always a, an amazing surprise, you know. <laughs> like, boy, did I have the picture in my head wrong about this guy? Well, yeah, no kidding, you're making it up out of whole cloth. Why wouldn't you be wrong? So, <laughs> so I really and and I know they do come up used on on the web on occasion, and periodically, I've done different short run deals. Um, with a variety of places, I've done some with, well, like I said, with with the late Barry Levin, and I've done a couple of projects with Uptowns, and a couple other places that are no longer with us. And I'm currently working a a small deal um, in Italy. So, and I did try Japan, uh, which ended up being a disaster.
0: <laughs> really.
1: Well, the pipes went over wonderfully well, and I came back with a whole group of special orders, eventually got around to doing the special orders, and I sent them to Japan, and I never got paid. Oh, wow. Yeah, and I wasn't the only pipe maker. It turns out there were probably four or five of us that had worked with this one fellow, and he didn't pay me and he didn't pay them and he essentially walked with everybody's hard earned money so needless to say I'm not hopping back on a boat and heading for Japan anytime soon
2: yeah
1: but that you know that happens i mean it happens in any business it just you know it's a little it's a, it's tough to take when uh, when it's me
2: you know <laughs> you know yeah
1: yeah, I mean, I don't know too many people that could work for six weeks and then not get a paycheck. Yeah,
2: exactly. you know, yeah.
1: <laughs> you know, I I don't know how the rest of the world operates, but I assume it, you know everybody else has to pay bills just like me. So that that really stung,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and it it screwed things. I mean, it screwed things up. I had to cancel my briar order for that year. So yeah
0: yeah what do you find your artistic influence to be
1: uh, artistic influences uh, <laughs> haven't changed since I was five years old um, salvador dali uh the surrealist movement uh, anything with a uh, a volume uh, uh, rock and roll. I've been playing in a band since 1964 or 5 or something like that.
0: No kidding. What do you play?
1: Uh, I play bass. Really? Yeah. I play. Right now, I'm playing in a in a three-piece band. We write all our own stuff. We've been together seven years. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. It's 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 fun. Oh, seriously fun. <laughs> yeah. <That's crazy. laughs> yeah. Seriously fun. So, yeah, uh, uh, our other artistic, uh, Ed Roth, uh, great custom car painter back in the 50s and 60s and 70s, uh, wonderful wild stuff, anything with a lot of imagination and a fair amount of color, you know, I'm a sucker, yeah.
0: And the work that comes out of your workshop where, where pipes are concerned, what... Um what are you inspired by that comes out in those shapes or forms or or blasts
1: Um for actually when you get down right down to the nitty gritty of what's the driving force behind that particular aspect I would say that the, the thing that just kicked my pants was the old dunhill shells Um, When I was working with uh, Barry Levin, we'd get a a fair number of the old Croup 4 shells come through, and those that were in good shape were just, they were astounding looking to me, having spent so much of my, you know, adult life sanding things smooth. And then to see these absolutely fantastic, twisted, gnarled, Prehistoric pieces of, of, of craftsmanship—they uh, just—they uh, just made me drool, um, and I've been chasing them ever since. You know, uh, not trying to copy what they did, but trying to explore the the same region.
0: How do you begin to make a pipe? Do you start on paper or? Yeah. Do you go directly to
1: wood or a little bit of both? or? Uh, no, it's, it's all on paper. Everything is uh, designed on paper. It's a hell of a lot easier to erase a line, you know, on a piece of paper and look at it and go, oops, that may have, you know, been good in my brain, but once I see what it looks like, it ain't so hot. Or let me try making the shank, you know, this angle, it's a lot easier to make my mistakes on paper. I make enough of them in the wood as it is. So um, they start on paper, then I make them into a transparent template. And when it comes time to make whatever shape, I take that template, and take a bag, my current bag of wood or bags, and spread right out on the floor. And I go in and and look through the blocks. And I may end up looking through 100 or 150 pieces of wood, looking for just the right one for a particular shape that I'm looking at. Wow. Yeah, it it yeah, it's it's different. I know there are other guys who, and I was taught originally to to draw on the block you know, to design that way. And I've seen some, you know, incredibly beautiful examples of that. It just, for me, uh, <laughs> I do everything else backwards anyway. <laughs> so, you know, and since I've worked as a commercial artist, I'm used to working, you know, from a rough sketch all the way up, you know through a complete set of plans with, you know, dimensions and everything else, you know um, a hundredth of an inch here and a hundredth there, and it does make a difference so it's just a lot easier for me to make my mistakes on paper,
0: you know Besides um, the carving that you do is there any other artistic outlets besides your bass playing that you have?
1: Ah uh... Well, right now, (laughs) I'm sitting in my living room and thank God for my sister lets me get away with this stuff. I'm surrounded by body panels from my motorcycle. Um, Winter is long and since I can't ride, uh, my Buell is getting a paint job this winter. Um, I bought this particular piece, bike, in August, and it came through a uh, wonderful, beautiful paint job, blue bike with gold flames. Well, that's fine if you're 25 and trying to get the cops to arrest you every 10 feet. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm t- we're taking the original set of body panels off the bike, and we bought another set on eBay bit by bit. And I've been painting that all winter. So that's, that's what I'll be working on tonight.
0: Wow. And how do you do that? Is that I guess that's a, a hand painting thing if you're doing it right there in your living room, right?
1: Well, yeah, right now I'm, I'm doing a little bit of the small hand sanding, but it's all done uh, with spray guns and airbrush and then with uh, hand brushes. Yeah, so it in, involves all kinds of stuff. And it's not that far away, you know. I mean, it's working, again, with an air compressor, Mm
2: -hmm.
1: you know, with a volume of air and with air tools. So it's like this time I'm not taking, you know, taking material off. I'm putting material on, so, Mm
2: -hmm.
1: you know. But it does require a change of clothes because I cannot go paint on a motorcycle having just spent my day getting covered in sawdust. So, you know. Yeah. So it is an excuse to upgrade my wardrobe.
0: (laughs) Um, Do you do a lot of painting like that? Uh, On and off. I
1: I go in spurts. There's there's always some project going on after hours. Mm -hmm. Um, I've built my own bass guitars, so I've built five of those over the years and that generally that'll be like a six month project and i've been working on this bike since fall so that'll be another six month or winter project so there's always something there's always something getting made getting torn apart getting sanded there's always something going on i can't sit still
0: (laughs) do you i bet you paint those bass guitars too right
1: yeah, actually, the last one I did wasn't uh, actually wasn't painted. It was stained, but I did sandblast. Did you
0: really?
1: Yeah, I, I did. <laughs> I sandblasted it and stained it to look like an old barn board. Um, yeah. Wow,
2: that's
1: yeah. cool. Yeah, that's a, it's fun, and, it's, again, it's a challenge, and it's the same thing. You know, design it on paper, make my mistakes there, and then go ahead and make other mistakes when i'm working in three dimensions so yeah a lot of fun
0: are we going to see a jt cook line of bass guitars uh
1: nah you know it's like uh (laughs) i'm a professional pipe maker the rest of the stuff i'm an amateur you know i'm i'm strict it's strictly amateur hour but i want to have something at the end that i can use functions does what i want and that i'm proud of
0: That's awesome. That's really great. Well, also,
1: I I just, I can't keep, like I said, I can't keep still.
0: Yeah. Yeah. You have not only influenced, but also helped other pipe makers over the years. I know uh, Jody Davis specifically comes to mind. He mentioned setting up a table next to you at a show and how Mm -hmm. how helpful you were to him from that moment on. Who were some of your early influences or mentors when you began making pipes?
1: Well obviously uh, I learned a lot working for uh, Elliot and particularly his partner at at that time in the briar workshop was a fellow who hasn't been involved in pipes in many, many, many years and his name was Jorg Jamelka and he was I believe Danish uh, but I may be wrong there. Certainly his family had Scandinavian influences, you could tell by looking at the guy. Mm-hmm. But Yard really knew his way around tools, and it wasn't so much the design end of it that I needed to get a grasp of it at, at that point, at the early points, but I needed to have a certain understanding of the tools and what worked and what didn't and what i could get away with and what i couldn't and Yorg was a hard task um not much got by him um and so i i credit Yorg with with uh, a lot of help in that in that direction mm-hmm. and then after that it was um Less than it being specific people, it would be the opportunity to work on specific pipes,
2: mm-hmm.
1: like working on a group of barlings.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: What, a, you know, what a treat that was, you know, to get some pre-trans barlings that were, had been well taken care of and get to refurbish them, because you could, I could take out a set of dial calipers, and I, and I did. And make notebooks and notebooks full of drawings and measurements wow. uh, and I mean that way, I was learning from the masters,
2: yeah
1: you know their their work was in my hands, and the the tooling to get there was no longer an issue, so it was really then that was the refinement of. Shape and proportion and balance, and in particular engineering, the interior engineering. Um, those were my my influences, and who the gentlemen are and the and the women are that that made all those, uh, I don't know, and I hope they've all gone to their great rewards, and I will light up a bowl for them and say thank you very much because there's some beautiful work out there.
0: That's great. You are known for sandblasting, obviously in a big way. You were on the cover of Pipes and Tobacco's magazine's Spring 2008 issue, with the article titled "Master Blaster," a great article by Chuck Stanion, by the way. Tell me about how and why sandblasting became something that you're so fond of.
1: Well, it, okay, uh, the the here's the short answer, and it's semi politically un- incorrect, but but so be it. Uh, the the way I have looked at it, having made, spent a great deal of time working both on on smooth the pursuit of smooth pipes, and then the pursuit of the blasted pipe. A smooth pipe is like a beautiful woman with her clothes on. A sandblasted pipe is like watching a woman take off her clothes for eight hours. <laughs>
0: I love this interview already, JT.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's, you know, instead of coming up with some highfalutin, you know, comparison, that's about as close as I, I, I can get, and you can make all the jokes you want about sawdust and wood and the rest of it, and it all fits if you make it, you know
0: oh that's great i think that's the uh i think that's the best um explanation i've ever heard about why why somebody does anything in the pipe world that's great (laughs) yeah well
1: (laughs) it's what comes to mind (laughs) i I tell you you know (laughs) a lot of strange things come to mind when i'm focusing let's put it that way (laughs) you know
0: Uh, uh and you still do um smooth pipes right
1: yeah, I think I made one or two last year, and they're on, they're generally, well, obviously, well, yeah, they're special orders, mm-hmm. and I usually try to talk guys out of it, mm-hmm. um, but generally the ones I, I do make, I will make them on on request, I ask people not to twist my arm too hard, because I'm old and I don't bend so well, I snap, Um. But, yeah, I I just don't enjoy them that much. I mean, they are pretty, but it just, it's really hard for me now to look at a block of wood that's coming through my shop and that I've worked on and look at it and put a finish on it when I know underneath it's prettier.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: That's just, it seems like a crying shame to me, but, you know. I I will do it on occasion you know I still can do it but it's just not not what I enjoy
0: Well no pun intended but you know you found your groove you
1: yeah, yeah I I found my like we we say in in Vermont you know in, when mud season comes and say pick your rut carefully you're yeah. going to be in it for a long time <laughs>
0: Yeah, and, uh, you know, I think that when an artist finds uh, their voice and what they like to do, you know, why in the world would you do anything else? So, yeah, makes I mean, sense. There's,
1: yeah, there's more stuff. There, There's far more stuff that I see that I can't do than I think I've accomplished. There really is a, a, a lot of what drives it is frustration without, without being able to do a better job or see something in the wood that I haven't figured out an effective way to display yet. And that goes, that goes on on a daily basis, on a yearly basis, and that's, I guess, what drives, the hopefully, the slow, steady progress.
0: You made Pipes and Tobacco's Pipe of the Year for 2008. There were 50 available. Yep. Tell me about that experience.
1: Well, that was the second time that I'd made um pipes of the year uh We did that originally. I did uh, a run of billiards uh for them i think in ninety nine if i if my hazy memory <laughs> if the sawdust is cleared out of my brain and there were two hundred and fifty of those and that took me a solid year to do that. Um, and those, most of those were blasts. There were a few smooths and those went over pretty well. And Chuck and I, Chuck stannon and I had, had talked over the years about that project. And I'd always, I always told them that I really, I in, had enjoyed doing that, um, because it gave me a chance to really concentrate and focus on the blasting work, without having to go through the rest of the the backflips of you know each pipe having a different shape. That the shape was was pretty much dialed in, and we knew what we were going to come out with as far as a a shape. So that allowed me really to just focus. Obviously, I want to learn things, you know, when I'm turning the wood, you know, progress there and also in the casting. But it, it allowed me to really focus on the blasting. So over the years, I, I I told Chuck, you know, if you ever want to do do that kind of a project again, I'd be interested. But obviously, I can't do, I can't make that number of pipes um it would have to be a much smaller run um and he uh, he came back with the offer and you know I jumped at it I welcomed the opportunity and that project since we we talked about it that was spread out over quite a long period of time in other words I didn't sit down and spend 6 months making 50 pieces for P&T mm-hmm. um I can't remember how many you know years it was spread out over. Um, so I would do like you know a couple each month. I I would make a couple of pieces each month, and send them off. And finally, I got I got that one done right under the wire too. <laughs> I think the the last pieces came out of my shop. I think just about a week before they. They went on sale, as I remember, but my m- memory may be playing melodramatic, you know, games on me.
0: <laughs> Over the years, you found new solutions to problems you've run into in the workshop, such as making your sandblasting nozzles. Mm-hmm. When when the ones you can't buy don't quite give you the performance you really want, you decide to go and fashion your own.
1: Yeah, well, yeah, I. I sometimes it's a, you know, ignorance can be bliss sometimes. And I really don't know what I don't know. And nobody's told me kind of well, you can't do that. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and it just seemed, it just seemed logical. It's like, well, this, you know, I will try stuff and continue to, to fool with stuff until, um, I hit upon something, and I'm still I'm still fooling with it. I mean, <laughs> my my shop, for all its uh, you know uh <laughs> knee deep in, in sawdust and seeming confusion, is littered with with the corpses of failed or exploded projects. So yeah, there there's always new stuff to try, and you know maybe 25 percent of it actually gets gets some real use um the other stuff you know just becomes spare parts for for another project down the road he but yeah sense. yeah if nobody out there makes it well then well, uh, hell i know what i need yeah you know i'm i'm not building a jupiter rocket you know i'm not building a mars probe folks you know it is not rocket science
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So, why not? Why not try and figure it out?
0: Can you tell me about some of the other innovations you've either made in your workshop in the past or some of them that you're working on?
1: Oh, boy, you know. Jeez. Um, well, pretty much the entire pressure-blasting system now, I don't think that anything in my blasting cabinet is even remotely close to being an off-the-shelf product. That's all pretty much hand-built stuff from the pressure controls all the way through. Um, So that's pretty much, you know, home-brewed. I'm pretty sure I was one of the if not the first one of the early guys to cast their own stems. And that came out of my my art training background. I'd worked a fair amount with with casting resins. And that seemed to go hand in hand when I was working with Barry with, with people people needing reproduction amber stems for some of their old meerschaums. And I had even when I was first starting out carving uh, my own pieces i was back then I was fooling with casting my own stones so and fooling with different uh, tenon materials and different you know different kinds of molds so I know i 'm not the only one doing it now. I know there's some other guys that that are fooling with that uh and that 's always great fun um so there 's that and <clears throat> most of the <laughs> most of the tools down there. It's not like you can run out to Home Depot and get this stuff, but I think that's probably true of a lot of pipe makers. We end up building our own stuff because we're the only ones who seem to know what we really need, you know. Mm
2: -hmm. Uh,
1: There's one piece of tooling down there that actually I think was designed by Mike Butera. And manufactured by another ex pipe maker named Michael Fry, uh, which is the rig that's used to hold the pipe while it's being stamped, <clears throat> while the logo stamp is being put on it.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And uh, I mean, and to look at it, it's very simple, very straightforward, but also brilliant. You know, I think it's the, one of the cleverest solutions to that problem uh that I've seen so but most of the stuff it's it's pretty much well the, the jaws for for the the lathe those although I didn't build them because the the size hunk of metal that was getting worked on there was beyond my capabilities I had a local machine shop build those but I designed them but, you know, that's n- nothing new under the sun anyway, you know. I didn't invent the pencil. I just used one in the shop.
0: <laughs> Tell me about the injuries you've sustained that oh. n- nearly ended your career.
1: Yeah, that,
0: yeah. Uh, well,
1: n- normally, you know, pipe makers are going to, it's a contact sport, and you're going to get clobbered anyway. Yeah. Uh, But I think what really did it was the years that I was doing the restoration work and doing large volumes of refurbishing for Barry. And I pretty much trace it back to spending endless days working on the buffing wheel. And that... I'd been making pipes probably at that point for, I don't know, 15 or 20 years. But that really that really just tore up my wrists. And this was a long time before anybody would ever heard of carpal tunnel.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and I certainly, it wasn't a hip, you know, it wasn't hip to have, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't even on the radar screen at that point. And that I really didn't know any better. I didn't know what the hell was going on. I didn't know what the danger signs were. And by the time I found out, well, I didn't have any health insurance anyway. Mm-hmm. and I had a wife and two kids. So, you know, stopping work was not an option. Um, you know, taking time off was not an option. Having surgery was not an option and then not being an option. So I continued, you know, I continued working well it, it 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 really got to to a dangerous point. Um, where, you know it physically it would just it was awful. <laughs> um and eventually I don't know how, I think Chuck Stannon found out about it and I guess he started contacting people unbeknownst to me, and they raised the 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 funds so that I could have the surgery done on on both hands and take some time off to recuperate.
0: Wow.
1: Yeah, yeah. And still to this day, it, it just kind of blows my mind. But it does show you the you know the the kind of community the pipe community can be you know they really are a wonderful group of of people and saved my career
0: yeah and that that really speaks volumes about um, the relationship that you know we all have with each other and and Mm -hmm. it's it's, it's really something special that's 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 an amazing story
1: yeah it is yeah
0: yeah so you had surgery done and after the surgery how much how much longer until you were able to get back to making pipes
1: well I uh, I waited the the requisite six weeks um, after the second surgery. I tried to go back earlier, but that ended in semi-disaster. When
2: <laughs>
1: apparently some of the thought, stuff I thought was was you know healed back together uh, wasn't really healed back together. Um, so I, it was about. It was about six, seven weeks after the second surgery that I went back to work. You know, enough was enough. You know, I couldn't sit still anymore. Jeez Louise.
0: And how long ago was that? Oh,
1: boy. Uh, mm, I'm trying to remember, because I was was going through a divorce at the time. Okay, so in this time period, I remember that I had had two surgeries and gone through a divorce all in the space of about eight weeks. Um, I'd say around maybe 2000, 2001, sometime in there.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I remember, the. I'm horrible with years, but I do remember that my first surgery was the day after New Year's. And all I was thinking of go, when I was going in there is going, I hope the surgeon is not hungover. Please don't <laughs> let the surgeon be hung over. I don't want to be the first thing he sees yeah. when he's looking cross-eyed and dangerous on the beginning of a new year.
0: Yeah. That, you know that's probably not the best time to to schedule surgery. I never thought about that,
2: <laughs> yeah
1: yeah, well it, it you know at that point it's like uh surgery this day, divorce, which day you know, go to the hospital. how am I gonna drive to the fucking court excuse <laughs> me, how am i gonna drive you're gonna have to edit that one you're gonna how am I gonna drive to the courthouse you know one handed in a stick shift pickup truck, how is this gonna work yeah yeah, you know, it's like yeah, it'd be some other body appendages at work then, so.
0: How are they? How are your wrists doing now? Are they? Do you feel like they're completely healed, or you still have some no. damage there? No, I have damage.
1: Yeah. The the problem was that the the it had gone on so long. Um. That, you know, when it, when the the surgeon opened me up, um, uh, obviously it's done under local, and I and I took a camera. So I had the nurse actually take photographs during the, the surgery because I wanted to see what the heck was going on. And I asked Doug, I, I said, you know, on the left hand, uh, you know, on a scale of 1 to 10, what are what are we looking at, Doug? And he said, uh, I "Said uh, well, on a, on a scale of 1 to 10, we're looking at an 11. Uh, and the other side, the right hand, was a 9. And so it's one of these things you know, you can, there's only so much they can fix
2: Yeah.
1: and maybe things are different now. There, there are some new and exciting things that are going on out there. So I, for right now, they ain't great, but they're certainly better than they were. And I certainly can, I can still work
2: mm-hmm.
1: and I've been in pain management since the surgeries, so and I, and I've learned to li- to to live with that and then, you know not bitch about it. It's just you know part of getting old. Is getting old is not for sissies, you know. <laughs> so there there's some things. That it's like yeah, I've made some mistakes in my life. Uh, yeah, there is a cost to them, but hey, you know I'm not in a wheelchair. Yeah. You know, so it's you know you shut up and and play the guitar you know kind right. of
0: tell me how you mark your pipes and about their grading there's really
1: very little grading um they're they're date stamped they obviously have my logo on them they have a small stamp on the nomenclature panel uh which says okf um and that you may have to edit out one word, but it stands for old gnarly fuckers.
0: <laughs> and where did she get that from?
1: Well, it was after one show. I I can't remember which show it was. My friends are much better at, at re- remembering the conversation than I am at remembering the moment. Of uh, picking up and and talking about some of the old Dunhill shells. And we were reminiscing about this collection and that collection. And and I said, boy, you know, I really do miss seeing a big collection of those old gnarly fuckers. Mm -hmm. And we started laughing in the room. And I made up my mind. uh, As soon as I came home, I I mounted up a new logo stamp for that um, as a way to remind me where I came from. Also, to lighten you know pipe pipe weenies can be sometimes can be stuffed shirts, and myself included and so that 's a way to remind me to lighten up, mm-hmm. you know have some fun with the thing.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: The only other stamp that appears um, there is a small stamp. It's about the size of my uh the logo that is on my stem. It's a stamp of a globe. The it's got latitude and longitude on it. And that goes on a few pieces that are, that just come out and everything's right. You know, the wood's right, the shape's right, it just it kicks butt from one end of the, you know, one end of the drag strip to the other. Um And some years, we'll all have maybe one or two, and then years will go by, and I won't see any. And that stamp goes on. It's a globe. It's called the Globe Stamps. There are not a lot of them running around, but there are probably, you know, a dozen or two. Mm -hmm. Um, And that was a stamp, actually, that I had designed for Barry Levin to use on a new line of pipes that he was coming out with. And we went ahead and ordered the stamp and got the stamp back. And before we ever got to use it, he died. So I kept the stamp. Um, many thanks to his family for allowing me to do that. And I do that as a way to remind myself of Barry. And for me, at least in my own association, um When something comes along, it's the best that I can do. And when everything converges, then it gets the stamp from from Barry.
0: That's great. What is your personal pipe collection like? (laughs) <laughs>
2: oh, ho, ho. Uh,
1: collection. I uh, use the term loosely, I'm afraid. I have, I have, I actually, thanks to my friends, I do have a very small, but very nice collection, and it's eclectic. It's uh, some old Barlings, some old dunhills, Um. There are a couple of Costellos in there. Uh, there There's some real oddballs that I've collected over the years. And then I do have boxes of pipes that Barry and I experimented, did a variety of Frankensteinian experiments on that I don't have the heart to throw away uh, that you could loosely call a collection. It would also be called Debris. It would be called firewood or kindling, or or what have you, and then I have you know what every pipe maker has, which are the things that he's killed in his own workshop,
2: mm-hmm.
1: that that he's taken a stem from something that never should have had a stem and put it in, and that's what he smokes.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So that's my 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 pipe collection, all the way from the pristine. To the something that you pick up and you just go, what is that? Ooh! <laughs> even I wouldn't touch it. Even you, I wouldn't even let your dog touch it.
0: <laughs> oh man! Um, I would love to see some of those Frankenstein pipes. Though.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I think one is enough. Yeah, you get the general idea when they're you know you look at the inside of it and you can't tell. Well, at some point it looks like they took a blowtorch to it and then they let some kind of a mold grow over it yeah. you know that, that's 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 about it you know that that, that gets you in the ballpark
0: that um that really speaks to me though do you have a favorite pipe that you smoke more than any other
1: i've got i've got a couple um, one is a dunhill smooth and one is the is the matched shell I love those pieces. Um, I do also have one piece that Barry gave to me, uh, and it's a piece that it never ventures out. Um, it is a Group 3 Dunhill Apple, and it is one of the finest pieces of precision craftsmanship that I have ever seen. I don't know how somebody in the factory went in late at night and made this little jewel, and they thought long and hard about how they were going to pull this thing off because it has got a teeny tiny pencil shank, and it's got one of the original old-style early bowling ball stems on it, and it's very unpretentious. It's just this little group, three-pipe, and it is just, it is a work of art, a thing of beauty. And it was, I can tell there were some, some persons at some point, just at the end of the couple of evenings, just had this big grin on their face. <laughs> and they put the Dunhill stamp on it, and they said goodbye to it, and it went out the door. But I'm sure that that was. I'm appreciating somebody else's just absolute joy at working with Briar and
0: and Vulcanite. And people do that with your work all the time. Speaking of which, um, are there ever any pieces that you get done with them and and you just can't part with them?
1: Um. Uh... Uh, may, I, let's put it this way. Every 10 years or so, I make myself a piece. Well, maybe every five years. And I think it's been about four years since I made a, made a piece and felt comfortable with saying, you know, I really like this piece. I'm keeping it for me. But generally, I'd much rather see them in somebody else's hands than in mine. Um... Yeah, the last one was a cobra bulldog that I did and the blast on it had these huge deep wide rings and they flowed just with with the block of wood. It was one of those things the whole time I was making I'm going, please don't screw it up. Please don't screw it up. <laughs> Do not screw this up. <laughs> don't screw it up and I didn't. And when it came out the other end, I went, "Boy, I I'm glad that's done. I put a lot into it. I'm keeping this sucker. Yeah. Yeah. yeah.
0: Do you have a favorite current tobacco? Ah. Uh, well, my
1: yeah, the the tobacco that I, I really like is no longer made. Like that's a surprise. That seems to happen. The the curse of death for tobacco is for me to like it. Oh yeah. You know, because then it's like it, it disappears. Uh, but I used to love the the AMC Peterson stuff. Um they've got one a nice flake, the Caledonia flake. And um, I think the thing that first attracted to me wasn't, you know, the the tobacco itself, but I looked at the little old man on on the front of it. And it looked like me in twenty years, and I said, "How the hell did I get on that?" You know, so I might as well find out what you know what I'm fronting here.
2: Right. And
1: it absolutely it's, it's a it's a delightful tobacco. So that's that is my favorite. I don't have a lot of tins of it, but periodically stuff will come up, or my friends who are you know heavy heavily duty into. You know, sneaking down hallways in middle of night with cash in hand to somebody's room, buying, you know, a 15-year-old can of, you know, whatever.
2: Right.
1: You know, I do have people out there that periodically scout it for me, and if it's not, you know, outrageously priced, I'll, I'll buy it. That's my treat. That's excellent. Yeah. I do, I when I'm working in the shop, I don't smoke a pipe. Uh, generally, probably not a wise idea, because I'm I'm literally surrounded on three sides with things that go boom.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, um, so when I'm working, um, I do smoke roll my own cigarettes, and so you know, and those I like very much. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, that. That's I get that stuff from DNR. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you're familiar with them, and I know they're they're doing diligently working to try to get their stuff into the pipe market. And I think Mark has got just an an excellent attitude, an excellent eye, an excellent nose, an excellent palate, and it has been fun to work with over the years. And I and boy, I I hope he can get the stuff tinned up. Uh, Because I think the more people that are exposed to it, um, the better. I think the McClellan stuff is just wonderful. Um, A lot of it is not my style, but there there are a couple of them that are are in there, the black shag, that I really love. So, yeah, I'm not all over the place with the tobaccos. It's pretty much Virginia's for me. I'm born, you know. Mm Mm-hmm. You know, I like Dunkin' Donuts coffee. I like Virginia tobacco. What can I say?
2: <laughs>
0: <laughs> what can we expect from JT Cook in the future?
1: Hopefully, my work in 2010 looks looks improved from 2009, so that you can tell it, it's a it's a newer piece because it's better. That's what I want.
0: Well, JT, it's been a real treat to talk with you today. I really appreciate it.
1: Well, sure. Yeah, a lot of fun. Yeah, and I don't think we, we turn the airwaves blue with too much stuff.
0: No, I don't think so. But um, this is going to be my very first pipe podcast that I'm going to go ahead. I'm not going to edit those parts out. I'm actually going to put it out as an explicit podcast. So there, it'll be the first and probably only one like that. So I thought, this is really cool. <laughs> well, I wish you
1: good luck with it. I hope big brother or big sister does not come out of the sky and haul you away <laughs> to political incorrection court yeah. where, where they will, you know, shave you bald and make you run continuous laps around the state capitol. So, you know, I hope you get away with it.
0: Me too. Well, I'm, I'm already bald, so half of that stuff. Oh, okay, okay. Well, yeah,
1: you're you're halfway there. Just don't do the laps for for the politicians. But thanks for the opportunity to to shoot my mouth off.
0: Oh, you bet. Thank you, and uh, I can't wait to meet you at the uh, the Chicago show this year. I hope to be there. Excellent. We'll talk to you later, JT. Okay. Thanks a lot for calling. Thank you so much.
1: Thanks, folks out there. Bye-bye. Bye bye. <laughs> bye.
0: And that was my chat with JT Cook, one of the great American pipe makers and truly a legend in his own time. This podcast was made possible by the Monstrosity Line of Pipes. Check them out over at oompaul.com today and help support the podcast by adopting the beast of your choice. Each comes with a lifetime ashes to ashes guarantee against burnout, breakage, and even bite through. But be warned, these are fierce beasts and at times may cause cuts, bruising, and blunt trauma. But, besides skin and blood, what do you have to lose? I'm Oli with Oompaul.com wishing you very good luck finding a way to get a spectacular J.T. Cook pipe in your collection.